I'm very happy to be back here at Wolfson College. A special thank you also to uh, Bill Connor and his colleagues for putting together this very thoughtful event on social investing and social uh, philanthropy. Uh, I'm delighted to be here with all of you today. I first came to the college with my family 32 years ago to do a, a DPhil, uh, and it was a, sort of a break from almost 20 years in private business where I'd actually run a very large worldwide entity for one family, unfortunately not my own, but um, it got me around the world and I became committed to what was happening in, in the world and I became very interested in doing studies at some point on my, on my, own, uh, my own time and it also gave me a chance to spend much more time with my children who were here in school uh, and Wolfson afforded us, the family, a chance to, to be active in, in the college. My wife was a member of the Music Society, and uh, I played tennis for the college when I was in my early 40s, and also served on the investment committee for Sir Henry Fisher. In fact, we made quite a bit of money for the college, but they stopped me from investing in Argentine bonds, which I think was a, a wise decision on their part. <laughs> Um, I would like to speak to you today about a subject very dear to my heart, one I've spent a great deal of time on, and that is uh, social investing and particularly uh, the commercial evolution of microfinance. I've spent a great deal of time on microfinance and have watched uh, closely as it has evolved uh, from uh, purely uh, donor-supported activity of NGOs to a commercial activity. Uh, so it's moved from donor dependence to uh, uh, su su financial sustainability. And uh, that is a very important process, as I will explain today. Uh, some background first. Uh, microfinance is amongst the premier uh, social or is currently termed impact uh, investment sectors and quite frankly I can't tell you the difference between social investing and impact investing but maybe we'll hear more about that today. In the early years, the 1980s to the mid 90s, if people knew anything about microfinance they knew about uh, Mohamed Yunus and Grameen Bank and uh, Brazil. Uh, I was uh, able to have Mohammed Yunus serve as the chair of my advisory board for SeekApp, uh, so I, I got to know him quite well. He was very—he is a very special and unique individual. If insiders knew anything about microfinance, they knew about, in addition to Grameen, about Bank Rakyat Indonesia uh, and its Unidesa system with Unidesas or units in 3,000 villages throughout. Indonesia, in Banco Sol, Bolivia, the first commercial microfinance bank in Latin America. And apart from those institutions, almost all the microfinance institutions were relatively small NGOs, uh, not-for-profit institutions, uh, with a few thousand clients. They were usually regionally focused within a country with, if, if at all, one or two or a few branches uh, and they pr primarily provided working capital loans of short duration, six months to a year, and in small amounts, uh, 
and with the exception of BRI, uh, none uh, Bank Rakyat Indonesia, none mobilized savings uh, to any scale. Grameen, in fact, had a forced saving requirement that people had to put 10 or 15 percent of their loan in savings. At, at, at one point in time, that the industry thought that wasn't a particularly good idea to emulate for various reasons. Um, so who are microfinance clients and what are their characteristics? Uh, microfinance seeks to provide uh, financial services uh, for that segment of the population in the developing and transition world which who really have little or no access to formal financial services. That doesn't mean that they don't have access to, to finance. They have access from friends and family. They have access from uh, retail stores that, that they might uh, buy from. They have access from money lenders above all, uh, but usually in amounts smaller than they need and uh, not necessarily when they need it, but often at, at very high cost. As many of you might know, to borrow from family is psychically very expensive thing to do, uh, if, if not financially an expensive thing to do. Um, so these people, th these clients that the microfinance institutions service and now all over the developing and transition world, and by transition, for those of you who might not know the term, we're talking about Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, Central Asia, Southeast Europe, the, or the Balkans. And, and those countries began to, to grow microfinance, largely because they had no uh, financial institutions whatsoever that serviced the small borrower, and therefore the growth and explosion of small business as those countries were liberated and began to move to, um, to uh, market-based economies. But I'm going to focus on the, the developing countries and poorer people in the developing countries. So uh, clients of microfinance institutions are either uh, self-employed or small micro-businesses. The definition is usually under 10 employees, but f in fact, most micro-businesses don't have paid employees, and if they have employees, is usually a non-paid uh, uh, individual apprentice or family. Uh, the, the whole family is usually part of the enterprise, and we call them mostly family-style or lifestyle businesses because, in fact, they uh, support the health, the food, the nutrition, the education, the clothing, everything that a family needs to are wound into this, this activity. Uh, most of these people, or these, these small micro-businesses, uh, are in the informal sector, and the informal sector can constitute up to 80% of employment in sub-Saharan Africa, in Haiti, and other very uh, poor countries that I've worked in, like Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan. Uh, and so, uh, microfinance has moved rapidly into these countries and has scaled from there. Now, um, microfinance, in fact, refers to the provision of formal financial services to poor and low-income people. 
It is a technology, in fact, for doing that well and collecting on those loans and making sure that the microfinance institutions are, in fact, part of the community. And that technology started in uh, Bangladesh and in Bolivia and Indonesia, as mentioned, and then spread very rapidly from south to south. So it's rather a unique example in my view. I don't know many others where the, the technology has moved from south to south. Uh, and um, in fact, it has become technologically more sophisticated as as it's moved on and has become commercialized. I'll mention that a little later. But in fact, it, it is a low-tech uh, methodology, but still a technology unto itself of lending uh, to, to quite poor people and making sure that these people uh, receive the loans that benefits them, and in fact, they pay back. And the, pay, the payment repayment uh, ratios are very, very high for these financial institutions. On average, across all forms, not-for-profits, cooperatives, credit unions, microfinance banks, loan losses have been well under 2% and portfolio at risk generally lower than 5%, which is quite low by banking terms. In fact, if you look at any of the European banks now in crisis, they're all up of 16, 17%. Well, that's because they're still in some form of crisis. Um, besides working capital uh, loans, microfinance institutions have evolved. And besides uh, doing these plain, what I call plain vanilla, short-term working capital loans, uh, they do remittances, they do transfers, uh, they, uh, they, they do housing uh, rehabilitation, education loans, and microinsurance. And most of all, as these institutions have matured and become more uh, commercialized, they are able, they become regulated, and as such, they are able to take savings. And in fact, much of the literature in recent years would argue that savings for the poor may be just as important or more important than the loans are. And uh, there's quite a bit of good literature on this at the current time. Uh, Microcredit is often called character or cash-based lending. It is expensive to deliver, which is not necessarily intuitive to people outside the industry. And it's expensive to deliver because you have to have people working in these poorer communities, uh, often in urban ghettos or uh, in remote rural areas. Uh, and as such, microfinance uh, interest rates are much higher than commercial bank rates. But that analogy or comparison is not a good one because, in fact, people cannot uh, the, the clients cannot borrow from commercial banks. They, often they can't even get in the door. Uh, and so the comparison is generally to, to money lenders. And uh, in fact, the um, rates of money lenders are multiples of what microfinance institutions. So microfinance institutions have often been criticized for high interest rates. And in order to, in fact, service microclients, the interest rates have to be higher. Um, the transformation of 
microfinance institutions, or MFIs for short. While in the 80s and 90s, uh, the, the NGOs dominated the microfinance world, uh, in the mid-90s and, and the 2000s, you know, starting in about 1995, and, but accelerating in, in 2000s, uh, many microfinance institutions began to transform and by transforming, they became either microfinance banks with shareholders, they became non-bank financial institutions, and that may, meant that they normally had investors and they were regulated. And as I mentioned before, the critical aspect of becoming regulated is that they could uh, transform and uh, uh, take savings on board. That had two advantages. It gave the microfinance institutions a steady base of capital, but it, uh, and it, it also uh, gave the poor a safe place to save. As you can imagine, if you're, you're poor and you, you need to save, and, and why do you need to save? Because you need to save against the rainy day. If something poor bad happens to the family, or you lose your source of income, you need to save uh, if there's an illness in the family, and you even need to save uh, in case of weddings and good events. The poor can become very poor indeed, uh, even from good events like weddings. So savings become critical, and the poor do save. They do save quite a bit relative to, to their income rates. Um, <clears throat> so increasingly, microfinance institutions have become commercialized. They've become larger. There are many now with over 100,000 borrowers. In fact, many with over a million borrowers. They tend to have a number of branches. They've had to take on sophisticated banking, uh, MIS, and reporting systems. And in fact, while they would be small by any banks you know about, they, they really operate uh, largely like microfinance banks. Um, Several of these have become multinational institutions, like Grameen Bank now operates Grameen America. It's the largest microfinance provider in the United States. It is in other parts of Africa, and the Grameen Foundation also works uh, throughout Africa. BRAC, also in Bangladesh, probably one of the largest and most successful national NGOs in, in Bangladesh, operates in other parts of Asia and, and operates uh, in various countries in Africa. And Compartamos from Mexico, an institution that I know very well and helped to fund, uh, has now acquired microfinance holdings in Guatemala and Peru. So as such, the industry has become uh, much more sophisticated. That has had its critics, but it's the only way, in fact, that you could scale up. So when I started the CGAP Secretariat, we were probably addressing 10 million clients throughout the world. Today it's somewhere between 120 to 150 million clients, although I've, heard some, I've seen some reports of over 300 million clients. I think that's an exaggeration, but it's very hard to get a, a firm grasp on the numbers uh, because there are so many institutions spread around the world uh, funding. Why is self-sufficiency and sustainability uh, so important? Uh, while virtually all MFIs seek to be self-sufficient, that is, they cover, 
their, their, their operating costs. Uh, sustainability is critical because you can attract and making a small return on assets and equity because you can then attract investors. And the only way the industry has been able to scale up uh, is to attract investors. They, and often those investors have been a mix of public and private institutions. And that formula of public-private partnerships um, funding the industry has in fact become very common and very successful. A little more about that um, in a second. But larger institutions, as I mentioned, are also able to provide uh, a diversity of products. They can provide housing loans, they can provide student loans, they can provide uh, micro-insurance, transfers, etc. And th that is very critical for their clients who need more than uh, straight um, working capital products. Now, rural microfinance is distinctly different from uh, urban microfinance, where most of the biggest institutions are, because you can get an easy um, conglomeration, agglomeration of, of clients. Rural microfinance supports poor farmers, uh, cash crops, or uh, the, the installation of irrigation systems, or solar energy, or water. And rural institutions are yet more difficult to serve because rural populations, for example, in Africa are so scattered. Let me give you two examples, I, uh, because you're going to tell me when I have five minutes left, right, Phil? So I don't keep running. I want to leave time for questions. Uh, just two examples. I served in, uh, for 10 years as the chairman of the board of uh, ELF, the Emergency Liquidity Facility for Latin America. And ELF provided bridging loans of six months to a year as a result of a natural disaster, earthquake, uh, volcano, or a, a political economic meltdown to microfinance institutions all over Latin America, Central America, and South America, uh, and during the general financial economic crisis that we're probably still experiencing uh, throughout much of the world. Uh, during, uh, ELF is just winding up after 10 years, during that time, we provided uh, uh, about $40 million in loans, uh, usually at a, a rate of about a million dollars or so, million and a half dollars or so, a loan to the microfinance institution to allow them to keep providing funding for their clients during cri crisis periods. Uh, ELF is closing now. It hasn't lost a dollar. It's been able to collect all its loans, and it, it had a network that it serviced of some 51 uh, microfinance institutions uh, throughout Latin America. So who has funded ELF? Uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Swiss government, the Spanish government, a U.S. overseas private investment corporation, OPIC, all public institutions, but also private institutions such as the Soros Foundation or the Open Society Institute. Axion International, a network of microfinance institutions. The Calvert Foundation, a large social impact network. So this partnership of public-private institutions has worked exceedingly well in ELF. One more example, I am presently on the advisory board of a network of African microfinance institutions 
some 15 microfinance institutions in East and West Africa called PAMIGA. And PAMIGA provides technical assistance to these microfinance institutions to help build their capacity. PAMIGA has recently, about two years ago, set up a finance company, which I chair, and we're just in the midst of raising uh, money for PAMIGA to finance uh, water, potable water and irrigation and solar energy uh, for nine of the microfinance institutions in eight countries uh, in East and West Africa. So who funds PAMIGA Association? The technical assistance funds have come from various UN agencies such as UNCDF, EFAD, by the MasterCard Foundation and the Swiss, Luxembourg and Liechtenstein governments. And PAMIGA financed by the Swiss government, the European Investment Bank, US OPIC, and the Calvert Foundation, again, public-private partnerships. So the microfinance industry has gone from purely donor funding in the 80s and 90s, uh, and usually at subsidized rates. Today, th those rates from the investment arms of the multilateral and bilateral institutions ha have become much more like market rates. The subsidy element has largely disappeared. And uh, through uh, a group of investment funds, there are about uh, 70 microfinance debt funds and 30 equity funds throughout Europe uh, and the US that uh, fund uh, the microfinance institutions all over the world. They put equity in or they put de intermediate debt financing. In addition, you have social and religious-based institutions such as CARE, Save the Children, Oxfam, Mercy Corps, the Aga Khan Foundation, and Catholic Relief Services, just to name a few. Moreover, there have been networks of microfinance institutions that have formed such as Axion International, which started focused on Latin America and now operates in China and Africa, or Finca, uh, both of these are in the States, Finca has 30 subsidiary operations in Africa, Latin America, and Eurasia, including uh, several of the Central Asian, poor Central Asian countries. So the industry has tended to move all over the world. It has scaled very, very rapidly. So just briefly on some, uh, some uh, of the criticisms of microfinance. Uh, there's been very good academic work on microfinance in the last few years, and there have been some very specific uh, criticisms. One is that the industry's paid inadequate attention to savings, and I think over recent years uh, that has changed a great deal as microfinance institutions have formalized. The second is that uh, microfinance institutions charge very high interest rates. Uh, in, fact, um, in fact, those rates have come back down dramatically as the institutions have formalized and people have been able, institutions have been able to mobilize savings. Uh, interest rates are still high and will always be high, uh, but not from where they were. I think the major two criticisms is first 
that microfinance overpromised. It really cannot alleviate poverty. And I would fully agree, and I think those who bought the message, the, the, the early prophets who were promising that it would alleviate poverty, uh, should not have been so naive. Uh, poverty is a very complex issue, and it takes, and certainly the poorest of the poor cannot be uh, supported through microfinance because they need a way to pay back the loans. Uh, but it, is been it has been proven that microfinance does a lot to smooth incomes to prevent poorer people from going into deeper poverty. And, and that, I think, is its main contribution. Uh, in addition, I think there's a generational issue. And the generational issue it goes like this. From microfinance institutions that I have managed to visit uh, all over the world, in villages in many places in the world, when you speak to the borrowers, they say, uh, well, it helps feed the family, it helps take care of health, but above all, my children are in school. And that means the children are not forced to work at 10 or 12 years of age. It means uh, that it pays for the tuition, it pays for uh, supplies and books. And in fact, as we all know, being here at Wolfson College, to education is the key. That is the answer long term. And all studies of development have shown that support for education is the most critical uh, tool in development. And finally, uh, the last criticism is, criticism is that uh, microfinance institutions tend to overlend that uh, the markets get very crowded, uh, they're not very good credit bureaus, and that uh, micro, people get overburdened with debt, and in fact, uh, there are very adverse social consequences from that. It is true in some markets, including Bangladesh, where the modern microfinance originates from, uh, markets like Colombia, uh, Morocco, and above all, India, where there was a deep crisis in the state of Andhra Pradesh, it is cl clear that uh, microfinance uh, has at times overextended itself, overlent, and that people became highly indebted. But I don't think this has been pervasive. I think the industry has tried to do a great deal about it. It's had a, a smart campaign to try to educate the borrowers, uh, and I think this is not a universal uh, criticism that could stick to the industry. No way do we see the kind of crises that we've seen from the major banking uh, system in, in recent years. Uh, it just hasn't happened and I don't think it will happen. Uh, so I'm gonna leave you here. I thank you for your kind attention and I'm open to uh, questions and comments. Thank you very much for, for having me. It's, uh, it's a privilege. And uh, thank you very much for that presentation, Ira. Uh, I think it dovetails very well into what we're going to talk about now. Um, I want to talk um, about financial inclusion in the context of education. So microfinance is all about getting money uh, to people who are, are poor and need to get one dollar to get the, ne the next dollar, as they say. Um, that also happens with young people who need a dollar to get an education to get more dollars later. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. First, I'll tell you why it matters to me. 
It matters to me because um, I, I was not able to pay for my own education. And I did it in a rather unconventional way. I was uh, brought up in Mexico and one day realized I could not go to university in Mexico and found out that it was almost free in Germany. <laughs> the only problem is there was an ocean in the middle. So I had to start fundraising from friends and family and people in my school because I, I used to play a little bit of guitar and then found my way to Germany and juggled 10 different jobs doing all kinds of things, got my degree and learned a lot of things. But I also wanted to make sense of, of my personal experience. I had experienced what you call an income trap. You need a dollar to catch the next dollar. Well, I was young and I didn't have one dollar, so I couldn't get an education, so I couldn't get a job, so I couldn't get dollars. Chicken and egg. But through my friends and family, I was able to mobilize the initial dollar that got me to Germany, got my education and all that. Why is it that the world operates this way? Is it right? It obviously isn't right. It's a waste, it's a waste of the world if people cannot utilize their talents. And, and there's money. There's money out there. The problem is that money is pretty lazy. So um, people have historically been working very hard for the money. But the money has not been working very hard for the people. The good news is this is changing. Money is getting fit. Capital is now being mobilized like never before. One of these examples is microfinance. This is uh, maybe the most famous person in microfinance, Muhammad Yunus, whom uh, Ira alluded to. And he uh, discovered that if he could help women in villages borrow small amounts of money, they could get small businesses off the ground to provide for their families. And if he could organize groups of women together, they could cover for each other and help each other out. And that led to a situation where uh, loans for poor women in villages were of much higher quality than loans for credit cards in New York. It sounds counterintuitive, but actually it makes a lot of sense. So interestingly, uh, or perhaps not, perhaps not very interestingly, but perhaps not surprisingly, I was captured by this idea as a student in Germany because I could relate to these women. I understood what it meant to be experiencing an income trap. And if only we could use this technology, low-tech technology, uh, to help people overcome income traps, then the world would be a better place. People would be free to utilize their talents in the best possible way. So I went back to Mexico after my, I got my degree in Germany. I worked in microfinance, obviously. And then I ended up in the UK uh, doing an MBA, which I funded with difficulty once again. Um, and then I said, you know what, I've had it. I need to dedicate myself to financial inclusion, but not microfinance anymore. I'm going to help people like me trying to get an education. Why? Because it's something that I know more of than many other people, something that's not being done. And if I could get people get edu an education and they could then go on to professional jobs and change the corporations in which they work, they could get their corporations to become more financially inclusive. And that could drive massive change in the world. So this idea just captured me didn't let me go. And so, much to my mother's dismay, I left a cozy corporate job 
to, find, uh, to found a company called uh, Student Funder. Student Funder has been running for two years now, helping people in the UK fund masters and professional courses. These courses are not covered by the student loans company, and the banks are not lending um, to, to, to these students. And you ask yourself, why? Let me <coughs> go back to this slide. Well, there are three elements in financial inclusion. How you manage the risk. Will people pay you back? And what do you do if people don't pay you back? Where the money comes from, who's prepared to fund these loans, and the administration. For example, in microfinance, you need someone going to the villages, knowing the people, talking to people, interviewing. That, that makes, makes it very expensive. The other extreme are online payday loans, where someone signs up online and in five minutes they have cash in the bank. Very cheap. Now, in a payday loan scenario, you can afford very high default rates because you charge very high interest rate and your operating costs are very low. Microfinance is different. Student finance is somewhere in between. So, at Student Funder, we need to cope with, with three problems. One is, well, you need some human element to it. It cannot be done like a payday loan. You need to learn a lot about the students. Uh, so you need to interview them. That's the administration cost. Then the risk. How do you make sure that these guys will pay you back? These are not credit cards. People don't have credit history. They're young people. You need to invest in their future potential. How can you gauge that? And when things go wrong, what do you do? How can you be responsible to the lenders providing the capital? And perhaps the most elusive question, where's the money going to come from? Who is going to provide capital for this? With microfinance, you can provide returns that are pretty attractive to investors. But with student finance, not necessarily. You need to cap it. You cannot charge a student more than, say, 10% per year, even though some banks have tried. Um, it has to be around 7%. In, in developed economies. How do you find that kind of capital? Well, you need to control for the administration costs and the risk. If the cost of managing these loans and, and, and the vaults are low, then you can find the capital. So you have very, a very small margin of error. Well, we've been successful in this year in, in, in funding 44 students. Uh, the average loan amount is about 7,000 pounds and Oxford is their favorite university. <laughs> uh, actually, two at Wilson College, so we're very pleased about that. Um, and we had to innovate on three fronts, all of them, all three. The administration, the risk, and the capital. So on the admin side of things, we use online technology. We borrow as much as we can from the payday lenders because they can process thousands of loans. If we do dozens, then that infrastructure works very well for us. We use Skype, so we Skype interview all our candidates. And it feels a bit like an admissions process for a master's. So something they're familiar with. That's on the administration side, which lowers our costs. On the risk, we share the risks with foundations and sometimes the academic institutions. By sharing the risk, we encourage people to provide the capital. Now, one thing that um, the industry of, of consumer finance always gets wrong is managing risk. They think it's about algorithms. They think it's about assessing. They think it's about predicting the future. Well, no one can predict the future. But in fact, you can influence behavior. What microfinance did brilliantly was create an environment in which people would be incentivized to repay 
their entire community is invested in them being able to repay. So instead of asking themselves, hmm, with these variables, could I determine whether this person would pay me back? They did the sensible thing. How do we ensure that this person pays me back and will want to pay back? Well, one, you need to be on their side. You need to be helpful. It's all about human reciprocity. And two, they need to have a vested interest in paying you back. It has a lot to do with people's character. That's why we interview everybody and we try to assess their future potential. And finally, where the money comes from. We've tried everything. Um, and most of it has failed. But uh, three, three things we've tried have worked so far. One is peer-to-peer -peer lending. So uh, we have people going on our website and providing a bit of this per cash, which is then borrowed by students to get an education, students pay back, and the individuals earn 6.7%. Now some of the risk is absorbed, is absorbed by a foundation in case of default. So it is a pretty safe uh, proposition for the lender, and a 6.7 return is really not bad, especially given the, the current climate. Um, the other one are installment plans, and this is my favorite. In many courses, you end up having empty seats. So what we do is we provide a loan for the student to go and fill those seats so they can actually enroll. And in fact, all it takes is a little patience. We just agree that the school will wait for the money to be paid back by the student. Very, very scalable model. And the third one we're setting up for next year, which is a big fund. Well, for me it's big because it's about 14 to 20 million pounds. But we have found that it's in fact very small for institutional investors. So we've struggled a bit to find the institutional investors to provide the capital um, because of the small size, they say. But the nice thing about it is that the educational institution is guaranteeing the loans. So suddenly the risk on these loans is very, very, very low. And we have now found social investors looking to put money into these things. They recognize it's a start and therefore they're willing to, to write a deal that is perhaps only 15 or 20 million pounds, which is not huge for them, but it's the beginning of the social investment industry dipping its toes into financing education. Now, how do we manage risk? Well, 14% of the people that we lend to, we use credit histories just like any bank would do because some of them are mature students and they already have a track record. The other 16, we use the principles of microfinance. If they could raise funds for their studies from 15 different people in their network, we would then lend them the rest. They would thereby prove their commitment and that other people believed in them and give us a list of 15 people who could give them a nudge if they forgot to repay. So they basically pledged their personal reputation as collateral for their loans. Now, we thought that would be the most common route to loans, but in fact, it was broadly the same as, as uh, people using credit histories. The majority of them used guarantors because these are masters and professional courses. Uh, people have already come across someone who could vouch for them as a guarantor. So we were very pleasantly surprised that guarantors um, were very, very useful. It's a very simple model. And now I will uh, just explain where the impact, impact investors come into play. So, <coughs> as I was saying, um, there are institutions out there seeking to make impact investments. The problem that they have is that institutional money has to move in big, big chunks. And there are few companies or projects that can absorb 
that amount of capital. So you end up with a chicken and egg situation again. The other problem is that these projects in the social space tend to be novel and often risky. So what we have done, if I were to go to a pension fund, hey, give us some money from your impact investment bucket for students, they would kick me out immediately. But if I told them, <coughs> and the risk will be partially shared by the university, who, by the way, have a better credit rating than government, because they've been around for a lot longer, then they listen. So now the only wrinkle is, can we make an investment of, of such a small scale? And if you find the right people that can make those investments, then you're good to go. So that is um, set to launch next year, mid next year. So it's all uh, history in the making, I hope. And, and the part that no one else can do is, is what we do, the administration of the loan books at a low cost. It's really that simple. And the regulation, which is not that simple. But basically, we, we do all the admin. Someone provides the capital. The university shares the risk. And then the ecosystem works. So this uh, leads me to the impact so far. We funded 65 people uh, from all around the world half of them from the UK, and we will hopefully fund a hundred more between <coughs> now and January. So um, I'm open to any questions, and I'd encourage you to think of what the best and highest use of your assets <laughs> is. Thank you very much.